Hello, and welcome to Journey With Us, a podcast of Journey Baptist Church. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Into His Word, a podcast of Journey Baptist Church. Today, we will be concluding our series through the book of James in chapter 5. And as always, we will look at the major themes of this chapter, some of the historical background, and any difficult or challenging verses that need to be addressed. Let's jump right into it, first with some historical background of the book of James. If you remember from earlier episodes, we talked about how James, the Lord's brother, was an apostle of the early church in Jerusalem, and he was writing mostly to a Jewish audience. And so rather than maybe the Apostle Paul's ministry that dealt primarily with Jew and Gentile relations, the Apostle James' ministry dealt mostly with rich Jewish believers and poor Jewish believers' relations. We see that in the prelude of chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Now, James is not saying in those verses that to be rich or to be wealthy is to be inherently sinful or evil. He is rather giving a sobering reminder of the true place of material wealth in our lives and that it is perishable. It will be eaten up by moth and rust and eventually be destroyed. So in chapter 5, we start out with a same warning. Verse 1, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Now in chapter 1, James was establishing equal ground between the rich and the poor. That Jesus at the cross makes no distinction between rich or poor because the rich are to humble themselves in the fact that their material wealth does not earn them anything in the kingdom of God, and that the poor are to be exalted because they are rather rich in faith in the kingdom of God. Here in chapter 5, James changes his tone towards the rich, much like, again, Paul would change his tone towards the Judaizers. That is, the apostle is addressing an extreme form of abuse of these individuals. With Paul and the Judaizers, oftentimes they were trying to add Jewish customs, lay heavy burdens of the laws on Gentile believers. In James's context, in Jerusalem, the rich were extorting the poor, laying heavy burdens on them, abusing their power, taking advantage of them. Because of this attitude, James gives them a strong rebuke. Verse 6, Look, The pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. James is saying that everything they have done in secret will be called into account before the judge who sees in secret and rewards in secret. Because they are getting their reward here on earth, they will not receive a reward in heaven. But James's address of the rich who are abusing their power only addresses one half of the problem in that these individuals are facing judgment. What of the poor who are being taken advantage of? Well, look at verse 7. It begins with a very famous word that I love seeing in the Bible, therefore. 
This is a causation statement linking the previous section, warning to the rich, with now the current section, which may be entitled in your Bible, waiting on the Lord. In verses 7 through 11, James exhorts his brothers and sisters to wait patiently for the Lord's coming, to not complain about one another so that they will not be judged, and to count it as blessing the trials they have endured. James gives his brothers and sisters three exhortations, patience, expectancy, and endurance, all in light of the Lord's coming. So again, the same judgment that James promises to the rich in verses 1 through 6, that they should await fearfully, James now promises to the poor or his other brothers and sisters with a therefore statement, but rather as an eager, hopeful expectation that the Lord will set all things right. This is where, again, we remember chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, that the rich should not boast in their riches, but rather in their humiliation, and that the poor should boast in their exaltation, that they are rich in faith, because when the Lord returns, he will set all things right. He will make the ground level. In chapter 5, there's still a couple verses left that fit this initial theme of judgment at the Lord's coming. Again, in verses 1 through 6, we saw that judgment is to have a fearful expectation that we are that if we are living unrighteously, abusing our circumstances, abusing our power and relationships, that we should fear the Lord's coming. Yet at the same time, expectantly hoping in the Lord's coming, if we are living righteously, if we are living patiently, if we are enduring trials and tribulations and temptations. This last verse in chapter 5, verse 12, is another one of those which levels the ground between the rich and the poor, and it is a warning about judgment of our words. Above all, James says, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, Rather, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. James makes it very clear that this is a foremost command by saying the words, above all. Above all, brothers and sisters, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In chapter 1, James exhorted the brothers and sisters to be quick to listen and slow to speak. In chapter 3, James talked about controlling the tongue, that it brings forth the power of evil and even hell. And now in chapter 5, James says, Above all, control your words because your yes must be yes and your no must be no, or you may fall under judgment. As we've talked about James being wisdom literature, this same principle can be found in the book of Ecclesiastes, where the author says, Better that you do not vow than that you vow and do not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the works of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, and so do many words. Therefore, fear God. This fear of God that the author of Ecclesiastes is imploring his readers to, in the context of letting our words be few, is the same fear of God that James is now exhorting his readers to in the eager expectation of judgment. Both the rich and the poor alike, both the righteous and the unrighteous alike, do not want to be condemned by their words. By every careless word, we will be judged. Our words will justify us, and our words will condemn us. Matthew 12:36. So again, 
James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, starts out with this leveling of the ground between the rich and the poor, that both should expect judgment, one in their humiliation, one in their exaltation, and yet both fall under the judgment of God according to their words, and both must be saved by the grace of their Lord Jesus. With that understanding, let's move on to the second half of James 5, the concluding paragraph of his letter. Verses 13 through 20 of James chapter 5 have to do with this idea of powerful prayer and the confession of sins. Now, this is where several of our difficult verses come in, which we will unpack. But before that, we just want to see the context that these verses are in. Verses 13 through 20 almost have this A-B-A-B structure where first, James talks about how the prayer of faith will save the sick person. And yet, the application to this truth is that, therefore, verse 16, we must confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we may be healed. So there is this link between prayer saving a person and the confession of sins. Then again, James repeats that the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful and effective in its working. And yet James ends his letter by saying, let that person know that if he turns a sinner back from his ways, he will be covered from a multitude of sins. So there is this idea that a prayer of faith saves a person along with the confession of sins of that person, and that the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful, so powerful that it can save someone from a multitude of sins. Here's that ABAB structure that we were talking about. There is clearly a great link between the forgiveness of sins and the prayer of petition or confession of sins to our Lord. But with this theology come some of our questions such as, How much faith does my prayer have to have in order to work? Will the salvation that we experience from prayer be physical or spiritual? And finally, what does the anointing of oil have to do with anything in verse 14? Let's start with that one. Verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church. They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This verse has caused much confusion in the reading of James but it's actually quite straightforward. It is not that in the ancient church oil had any sort of mystical power or understanding, nor was it on the other end of the spectrum of rather than being so mystical, it was just a completely physical remedy that oil was a type of medicine in the ancient world. Rather, the answer is somewhere in between, where it is not that oil in and of itself contained any magical power, but is not either that oil was merely a physical remedy, but rather the oil was a physical sign of the spiritual power of prayer and God's healing. In the same way, baptism is an outward evidence of the working of God in our hearts. So in the early church, the anointing of oil was an outward sign or symbol of an inward healing that they were petitioning God to take place. One such practice that we still see today is the laying on of hands when we pray for someone. It is not that our hands transfer any spiritual power from one individual to the next, but rather there is a physical sense of a spiritual reality taking place. And the reason we know this is because of the immediate sentence in verse 15, that it is the prayer of faith that will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. It is not the oil that saves the sick person. It is the prayer of faith. 
That leads to our next difficulty. How much faith do we have to have in order to be saved from our sickness? Is deliverance from sickness always a guarantee? If you've been around Journey Baptist Church long enough, you know that our answer is no. Deliverance from physical sickness is not always a promise that God gives us in the Bible on this side of eternity. Rather, the prayer of faith has very similar understanding of, again, the prelude of James, chapter 1, verse 6. Let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like a surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, but being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. When we come to the Lord in faith, we are to becoming expectant and hopeful of his power to save us. We are to come to him knowing that God is fully capable of healing us and fully good to do so or not to do so according to what is best for us and what will most glorify himself. After all, what takes more authority to say, Jesus asks, your sins are forgiven or rise, pick up your mat and be healed. Even in the Gospels and Jesus' life, physical healing was always a proof that Jesus was powerful enough to give a spiritual healing, which James affirms in verse 15. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. James has the same understanding of spiritual healing, transcending physical healing that Jesus had and that Jesus' followers had in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. That is why there's this A-B-A-B pattern in these verses that prayer of faith will save a person along with the confession of sins. Prayer of righteousness will save a person along with the confession of sins. Finally, I want to talk about one last difficult verse in this chapter, verse 20, that if a brother or sister returns anyone wandering from the truth, that he will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. There are two possible ways to understand this verse. The first is that the individual who is being saved from death and whose sins are being covered are the individual who is being rescued from the path of destruction, the one who has strayed and is being turned back, that he is the one who will be saved from death and his sins will be forgiven. That is a very true premise regardless of if this is the verse's understanding or not, because the second understanding is that of Proverbs 10.12 and 1 Peter 4.8, that love covers a multitude of sins. The idea here is not that love atones for our sins or that good works forgive our sins, but rather love can overcome our sins. Forgiving others of their sins takes the punishment and consequences that should be resulted from their sin and places it either on ourself or unto the Lord who paid the price for all of our sins. It is very similar to Jesus's line that says, help us to forgive the sins of others so that our sins may be forgiven. We don't want to get that order reversed because rather it is the forgiveness we have already received that allows us to forgive others. This is the idea that love covers a multitude of sins. And this is another potential understanding of verse 20 of James chapter 5. This concludes our study and discussion of the book of James, specifically today, chapter 5 of Into His Word. I hope this has been a helpful exercise as you have been a part of your Journey Together discipleship groups. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for our next series.